You're listening to the thoroughly good classical no. <laughs> You're listening to the thoroughly good classical music podcast. Okay. That's great. Now in Flemish? Yes, please. Okay. Okay. U luistert naar de thoroughly good music or I can just translate it if you want. Yes, please. The thoroughly good classical music podcast. Thoroughly, what does that mean? Well, it's just, I mean... It's, like, it's very, 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 very... Yes. Very, very, very... It's, very, it's, it's really good. Okay. <laughs> okay. U luistert naar de uitstekende podcast over klassieke muziek. You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, everyday conversations between artist and audience member that highlights, demystifies and celebrates the classical music art form. You can gain exclusive early access to each podcast episode, plus a whole host of other benefits and trinkets by signing up to Thoroughly Good on Patreon. Just visit patreon.com forward slash thoroughly good. Podcast 61 is an international episode recorded on a day trip to Brussels where I spoke to clarinetist Annaline van Moor, a Bolotti Bottoni artist whose new album features works by Debussy, Brahms and Vidor, amongst others. All of the selections inspired by and a reflection of the late 19th century Belle Epoque movement. After the podcast was recorded, I visited a museum close to where Annaline lives where lavish examples of the Belle Epoque movement can be seen in architecture, furniture and interior design. There, walls pulsate with burnished browns and reds, their walls framed by glazed tiles and gentle wooden curves, all of it very H.G. Wells, airy, elegant spaces with a hint of exciting new scientific developments to come, like electricity, the telephone and the pneumatic tyre. There's a video linked to in the show notes if my description doesn't quite conjure up the right image for you. I played a lot of the music that follows as a teenager. Back then, the solo clarinet line was, in in some cases, as originally written, accompanied by a piano. Hearing that repertoire I have strong emotional connections with from 30 years ago, brought to life with an orchestral accompaniment, have given the works colours I've never heard before. That might be why, at times, I sound uncomfortably and uncontrollably excited. Please forgive. took about I think two years 
the time to contact the orchestra to actually schedule the recording. The recording took place in December 2018 and um, it was ready, I think, in July and released in August. What is your relationship with it now? I mean, that sounds like a long project. My, the projects that I work on, I'm normally between two or three months and then it's dead and it's, I no longer have to worry about it. Yeah. I wonder how you feel about a project that you've devoted two years of your life to. Um, it was a very important one. I mean, because I, I am Belgian and I, I, I'm absolutely fascinated by Art Nouveau and uh, the art of that time. And I was wondering, oh, well, let's have a look if there's any clarinet music from that period. So I ended up finding really beautiful pieces. Um, I've ordered some um, orchestrations, arrangements for clarinet and orchestra of actually pieces who were originally written for clarinet and piano. So uh, I don't know, at the end it, it became something really precious, I would say, because it really breathes me and, and Belgium and, and this, this whole extremely elegant period. Do you live that era? A little bit, I think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, watch around you. <laughs> I, I mean, was, I, that the, was that one of the criteria? Was that an accidental criteria for selecting this apartment? <laughs> not really, but uh, yeah, I was one day watching my ceiling and I told myself I'm going to make a CD <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with belly pop mean, repertoire. Not really, but I think, yeah. But there I, is a link then. There, I mean, there is one because I, I, I've always loved that and I feel kind of connected with this. I mean, Belgians aren't very proud of anything or we don't really know. Are they not? No, not really. We don't oh. really know what our identity is because there are like three official languages in our country and and, and we're a bit everywhere in Europe and, and we love to travel, but there's no real strong identity. But Art Nouveau has always fascinated me. I think it's very, very beautiful. So I wanted to make that breathe in, 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 in the music from that time. What are the... Obviously, I don't want to bang on about your opponent because <laughs> that would be a bit weird. But are there any links? Are there any characteristics? I mean, I, I see this as, as you know, when I came in here, it was, oh, the ceilings are so high and there's so much space and, oh my God, it's gorgeous. Uh, is there... Do you see similarities between the music and the album or the style of the music on the album and, and the architecture? Can you tell me what those similarities are, if they exist? Oh yeah, I do, definitely. I, I mean, they didn't actually use straight lines. So everything is curved, it's flowing, it's uh, based on nature. And, and if you hear, I mean, especially the Debussy Rhapsody, for example, it's, I, I see the architecture, actually. I can see the Horta House with all the gold and the, and the light and, and the games of the light coming through the window. So in a way, yes. It's not. It's not ornate. It's not. Uh, it's. I wouldn't describe the Debussy as overly sentimental or sort of indulgent necessarily. No, it's not. It's, it's extremely detailed. The music, like you can really watch one bar for about half an hour and still discover new new things. So that that's why I love this music because there's so much place for for detail and for really going to the elegance and and to find something really, really precious. So you like detail? I love it, yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. That was really good. Um, in what other areas of your life do you like detail? I guess almost everything that is surrounding me, my clothes, my, my furniture, um, the way I, I, I communicate with people, the way I, I teach 
I think I go, I, I like to go very much in detail. Are you a planner? A planner? Yeah. In life, plan like organize. Yes, I do. So when you go on holiday, do you plan oh, yes. things down to the... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I told myself if one day, I'm, I, if I would stop being a musician, which is of course never going to happen, because I would, I would just miss it too much, but I told myself that I'll become an event planner or a music manager or something like that. I love doing it, yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Does that make you a perfectionist then? Yes, definitely. I think so. Yeah, yeah. But I think, I mean, perfectionist can also have something negative in it. But mm. I think in my case, it's a little more positive because I can also let go of things. Because I think that actually this this um, this urge for perfection can only exist when you actually let go of of certain of a certain will to to reach it, and then it might happen. That's why I love also live concerts because you never you you don't know how it's going to be on stage, but once you're there, and if then you let go after a long preparation, of course, practicing, then it can happen. This kind you of describe, magic. Yeah. The way you describe it makes me think of mindfulness or meditation. That idea that you know in the <clears throat> in the meditation process, um, you're spending a lot of time focusing on breathing. You know, there's a, mm-hmm. so. Within the period of meditation, mm-hmm. you're focusing on the breath yeah. a lot of the time. And then there comes a point in a session where you completely let go. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly you realise that actually you're not thinking about anything at mm-hmm. all. And, and there's just complete, there's a complete void. It, that, that's what you describing that makes me think of. Is that similar? Mm-hmm. Is that your preparation for concerts? It's also one of the things I like very much. So um, it's similar. I mean, you, you, you practice, you work real hard over a longer period of time I, I feel extremely connected with, with the body while practicing or, or being on stage like that's for me the, the base of actually being able to do it um, but then on stage with an audience in front or, or a microphone for a recording there's this moment actually of really letting go and just seeing what's what's going to happen yeah <laughs> it's not that scary is it not is it it's not, not that scary no it's not scary at all do you thrive from it then thrive on it then yes yeah i think wow. so yeah yeah Debussy mm-hmm. when did you first when were you first introduced to it I think I must have been about nine years old and um, I played the clarinet for two or three years I think and um, we had a, a CD at home with the Debussy on it with piano and I, I loved it so I, I went to see my teacher and I said hey could I practice can I, can I play nine this and he said are you, are you insane this is a piece you know, you'll play it one day if you so will go to conservatory. Ambitious, but let's say Exactly, ambitious. Yeah, 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 I've always been like that. And I, I absolutely wanted to play it. So it's probably the piece I've played most in my entire career. And I, I just can't get bored of it. 
each time I play, there are new things I discover, and it's it's, it's a wonderful challenge to, yeah, to be able to to you know play in such a smooth and also soft and delicate way. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's Definitely ideal for the clarinet. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it seems okay. like a really obvious thing to say, but actually, the more I think about it, it's just it just revels in the clarinet's voice, doesn't yeah. it? Mm-hmm. Um, it does. Uh, what effect did it have on you when you first heard it? Felt like a dream. I mean, just sounds maybe a little bit cheesy, but it was it, because it has so many different atmospheres in eight minutes of music. You have everything. You have um, morning, uh, dawn, the, the sun coming up, or waves, or, or all kinds of things. So I think it's it's actually it is emotional, but always in a kind of introvert way. I think. Um, so you wanted to play it at nine. <laughs> yeah. I managed. <laughs> did, did you get? So your teacher said no. He said, "Well, let's see. Oh, why, well, he why don't your you try until about like the middle of the piece? Because there you you have a scherzando starting. So okay, that was a little bit difficult. I I kept on playing the wrong notes for about three months." But the whole beginning, I, I, I kind of managed to do it. And um, there were actually some friends of mine, clarinetists, who were 10, 15 years older than I am. And they said, actually, I don't think you could do it wow. <laughs> when I was 11. Apparently. Wow. So, it, yeah, it's really a so very you special had, piece. you'd finished it off. You'd finished it off. You'd completed it. You'd got it under the fingers when? 11, oh, I guess. Really? Yeah, but God. Honestly, I don't know how it sounded. It yeah, must, we don't need to worry about that. But, but clearly, you, your perception, your perception of that was that by eleven you had nailed it. Kind of. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, how's how's your relationship with it changed since then? With the piece, yeah. Mm, it became more and more detailed again. Like now I can tell my students exactly, oh, careful, you forgot the dot. And it's very annoying because you wrote it and you, you should do it. Um, so that's, that's what changed. Um, I guess what changed as well is that now, of course, it's much easier to play through the piece. Also um, physically. How do you maintain that... Um if it's so familiar and if it's something which you have known for a long time, how do you maintain uh, that sort of interest, that excitement about it? It's a very interesting question. Actually, I don't need to do anything in, in particular for it. There are other pieces where I, I do need to focus on it in order to still be able to play it with a proper emotion or as if it was, would be the first time but the Debussy each time because because it is so challenging in a, in a, if you see the technical parts of the clarinet it demands quite a lot and it, it is in a way a little bit like a meditation session or something you need to be extremely focused uh, in order to to perform it yes. uh, without without naming the works the way you have to maintain that attention because I think professionally that would be a bad thing to say yeah. uh, don't name the works but what what is it about those other works that is demanding a different kind of approach um, is it tech is it technical stuff or is it sort of a relative simplicity or no there's everything in it actually I mean um, he goes an extremely soft colors for example 
which is actually very hard on a clarinet. Hmm. In order to do it in a controlled way, you, you need feel, to feel fit and to be in control and not to feel anxious about anything. That's the only way uh, to make it work, but th there's, there's much more than that. There's a, the flexibility as well of the sound, I would say. Like you can make the sound spin around, you can work with, with vibrato, all kinds of things like that, and you just need a, a, a big, big amount of fantasy as well to make it speak. Um, again, the details, the articulation, there's so much to find in that piece. Uh, and, and the whole second movement, the whole scherzando, is very fast and, and virtuous and everything is, is in there. So it's really like eight minute, a showcase of how to play the clarinet. Yeah. How does it change in terms of the venue that you're playing in? Um, it changes quite a lot because the acoustic changes, of course. So sometimes the introduction I would play it a little bit slower if there's a lot of acoustic, if, if, if it sounds beautifully, yes, yeah. So uh, a boomy acoustic then. There are, there, you, there, it, will become, it will become apparent why I'm asking all of these things uh, later, but I don't want to give a game away just yet. Um, uh, presumably then a boomy acoustic with something like Debussy means that uh, some of that detail might be lost and so therefore it's necessary to take it slower, is that Yes, right? yes. Then I would probably play 10% slower and articulate much shorter or not go too much into um, loud dynamics. I would rather say stuff because they, they sound loud any anyhow in a in a large acoustic. Yes. Um, I ask all of these things because the Debussy is not something that I played. Uh, I played the clarinet sonata, the Brahms, and the reason that I wanted to no no on the clarinet. Uh, and no, actually, and at the piano as well, wow, okay. but obviously not at the same mm -hmm. time because that would be a bit strange. Uh, but uh, the reason that we're meeting is because Deborah had sent me a link to the the album, and um, there were two pieces on it that I had hadn't heard for I don't know fifteen years, and I heard them in an orchestral setting. I thought, oh my god, I what? I had no idea about this. Um, and one of them was the Brahms, the other one was the Canzonetta. Uh, and actually, when I heard the Brahms, uh, it was like I had discovered a concerto. I mean, I recognised the music, obviously, because I played it as a student. I had no idea that there was an arrangement of it. the arrangement how did you how did you discover it well I was really um, looking for pieces written between let's say 1890 and 1910 in the Belle Epoque 
And then I, I, I thought, oh, well, actually, there's Brahms. Brahms mm. isn't very French or, mm. you know, Parisian. But still, it, it, it does make sense. And I thought, well, yeah, I could record it with piano. But then I, I knew that there, there is this arrangement by Berio for Planet and Orchestra. And I've listened to it and I just, I completely fell in love. Because I think it adds a lot, a lot to the piece. It's a different piece. It's yes, completely it is. different. Yeah. Um, and it, it's gorgeous to do that with an orchestra. You know, to be still in front, <laughs> brave. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you. I um, the piece that I that the, or the movement that I was introduced to the work by uh, was the slow movement. And actually, I listened to I listened to it back at the score. I don't normally. I mean, I said I didn't do very much research, but for this particular interview, <laughs> I did do some research. And I don't normally what I don't normally look at the score beforehand. But there, but in the third movement alone, there is a. There's an exchange between um, solo clarinet and principal clarinet in the orchestra that obviously you you wouldn't normally hear in the piano. Yes, yes, and yes. it's it's so touching. It's like two dogs meeting in the park. Yes. It's utterly, utterly ravishing. Um, and I experienced quite a thrill. something about the arrangement or something about the work that when you hear it set for orchestra it's it provides an emotional rush of the yes. kind that I don't know that I experience with other pieces of music mm-hmm. what was the experience of recording it like? Well it's, it's real chamber music so each single musician on stage was important so um, it really brought us together yeah I was also um, set up in the inside the orchestra, so I had everybody around me. Mm. Like, hi, second violin, hi, viola. <laughs> yeah, I'm oh, the sonata, wow. not you. Yes, exactly. So, but it was it was wonderful to to just work on that, and and we've worked very hard uh, to make it work. Um, also, the contact with the conductor, of course, because I mean he basically had to behave like a pianist who would accompany and play with me but then translate it in, in, in the orchestra parts so it was very exciting absolutely yeah what was that challenging then it was very challenging definitely <clears throat> yeah yeah to have everything together um, the balance of the clarinet is not a very easy thing because of course you don't have just the piano you have a, an entire orchestra and it's pretty large um, the settings, so um, yeah, we had to work very hard on dynamics. Um, some parts where I had written well, piano <laughs> became more like mezzo forte, <laughs> and the forte became something like just yelling in the clarinet sometimes. And but there was, there it adds a, so much drama to the piece. So there was uh, there is a movement where, um, and I can't remember, even though I say that I know the work, um, there's something in the transcription. Which, when it's in the piano, uh, I think the piano and the clarinet line are basically out. I don't mean it in terms of they're not together. It means yeah. that the, the piano accompaniment yeah. is 
is a is a quaver ahead and the solo is on the beat something like that yeah uh, and that works when it's clarinet and piano when when I heard it with the orchestra it's like oh, I don't know what I don't know what's going on I don't I don't know where the beat <laughs> is I don't know what's going on do you know where I mean I think I know exactly <laughs> which part like, you are you sure about this I think in the third in the <laughs> third, third movement that's it yeah 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 you have this yeah you have the it's all slow the Doppler effect yeah 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 that's the part yes we had to work very hard on that but in the end it worked anything about Berio's arrangement I mean seeing as he's not alive anymore I'm sure you can say this is there anything about Berio's arrangement that actually you'd have liked him to have done differently Um, I'm not 100% sure if he really because he added a couple of bars in the in the beginning of Mm. the first movement Mm. and also in the second movement Mm. Um, so that's the only thing I'm not sure about of course we recorded to do it why did you add them um because he wanted to, you know, he, he wanted to, <laughs> dead or not dead, but we wanted to. <laughs> we have to, we have to we maintain a certain to, level of respect. No, no, we wanted care. to honor Berio, and um, if this was his idea, I mean, he has a right to also have it recorded that way. So I, for me, I mean, I thought about it, but I thought maybe it's a tiny bit arrogant to say, aha, I don't like it, I'll just, I'll just do the original Brahms, because then I should have recorded well, the version with Well, then it would have been your piano. arrangement, wouldn't it? Oh my god, yeah. Mm. <laughs> Let's talk again in 35 years. <laughs> um, I hadn't, that hadn't even crossed my mind that you might think that people thought, might think that you were arrogant to cut it out. But like you, I agree. The, yes. the, the, opening, the opening bars of the first and second movement, is it? Mm-hmm. There are sort of moments where I think, I sort of recognise, I'm not is this really in the original? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and that suggests that it doesn't quite sit right in yeah. terms of material. It's a little bit confusing. Yes. Maybe it's because we, of course, know the original version so well that we cannot really get used hearing something else. But there's still something else. There's a different way of composing, I think. It's the second the movement that's the slow movement. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and for me, the slow movement needs to start on bang on that note. Uh, I'm, yes. so, I'm sorry I'm being so yes. nerdy yes. about this, but I, I haven't. I've only interviewed one other clarinetist before, and we talked about the Mozart clarinet concerto, and I hate that really. And I had to be really flattering about it. Oh, I'm not. I didn't. I don't. I, don't ha- I didn't hate his performance of it. Oh, he's okay. he's an adorable man. But the, the concerto. Uh, but I just. I find the concerto really boring. Is it? Oh gosh. Oh, yeah, I would you're love another to person. convince you today, but... <laughs> yeah, you're the third clarinetist who said that to me. Oh, no, it's really beautiful. Yeah, yeah whatever. That's fine. And the canzonetta, actually, it was the canzonetta that I heard first when, when Deborah sent me the link. Thank you. 
character when Emma Johnson, I don't know if you know Emma Johnson. Uh, the name? Yes. Yeah. Uh, when she won BBC Young Musician, oh. she recorded an album on which there was uh, music written for a television programme called The Victorian Kitchen Garden mm-hmm. by Paul Reed, maybe? Is that the one with harp? Yes. I right? like the pointing thing that you're doing, yes. Yeah, so he wrote that for yeah, a television yeah. programme. Uh, oh. and, uh, and she recorded that for the TV series. And then she recorded it for the album. And also on that album was the Canzonetta. Okay. And it was because of that album, it was because of her winning the young position, that I started learning the clarinet. And when I heard that album, I wanted to get the music for the Canzonetta. Mm-hmm. So until I heard the link, until I got the link, I also hadn't heard that in an orchestral setting. Mm-hmm. It makes far more sense with an orchestral accompaniment. Mm-hmm. How yeah, did you come does. by that? Has that already Same been Same story. Uh, no, no, I really, I, I ordered all those arrangements um, of a, um, a composer I'm working with very often, Yeleta Sands, he's called, young Belgian flautist. And um, I, I really wanted to translate it in an, in an orchestral version because I, I loved those pieces, but I thought maybe we could just add something. Also the Vidor, I thought this, this needs to be on an album, mm. but just bigger. Because the, the, the yes, interesting yeah. thing is that both Piernet and Vidor were organ players. Mm. And so and, we're used to those you, really grand yes, statements. Yes, yeah. these large things. So I think he yeah, sends it really well um, in terms of spaciousness. All of the music in that, or certainly all of the music on the album, and I'm wondering whether this is a characteristic of that era, uh, is rooted in melody. It's not that it's sweet, necessarily, mm-hmm. but it is rooted in strong, unequivocal melodies. Yes, definitely, yeah. Are there any other characteristics, do you think, about that music from that period? It's very colourful, very often intimate, but without becoming sentimental, I think. Um, and again, it's, it's flowing. There's always a line going forward. There's nothing really, like, vertical in it. And that's what I love about, about this style and, and these pieces in particular. Yeah. And then the Manfred Trojan, he wrote the, a rhapsody. And the first time I discovered that, I thought, wow, okay. Well, that's basically the little sister of, of uh, Debussy's rhapsody. It's like it even has French titles. I mean, he is German, lives half of the time in Paris. And uh, it fit it so well. Like the the whole beginning of the of the Troy and Rhapsody, you could, you know, just put it parallel with the DBC. Yeah, I think it works very well. What are you planning to do next? Oh, I have. You're going to do some after number two. <laughs> no, um, I need to talk about it, but I would love to record Finzi Concerto and Copland and Bernstein and all kind of very radiant. Fun pieces. There's a Bernstein concerto. Um, it's a sonata. Okay. I would, oh, oh, I would again okay. use right, right. Um, okay. an orchestral version of that one. And then the another project, uh, which is hopefully going to work out, um, is the recording of a new concerto of a commission. It's called Sutra. And it will be a concerto around meditation. Right, okay. Yoga. Kinds of things written by uh, Wim Hendricks, a Flemish composer. 
yeah, who's writing so spiritual important. music since about 20, 30 years. So. so meditation is important to you then? Yeah, yes, yes. Definitely yoga. I think I, I yeah, yoga is a daily... So that was quite perceptive. Yeah, 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 I thought you... <laughs> I hadn't done Did any research, do I didn't know that. No, research, it was just something yes. about the way that you talked about it, yeah, yeah. just to emphasise that. It's not like I've been stalking mm-hmm. you or anything. Mm-hmm. Or pressing my nose against the glass. Yes. Um, in what way is that important for your playing? Um, I mean, is it is it something oh. that you that you use as in meditation or yoga? Something that you use in order to escape from playing, or to support you to maintain resilience? Or it's more a support, but sometimes it's also nice to get away from it. Of course. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I mean it makes you extremely conscious about the breath. And I mean, as a woodwind player, I think there's probably nothing more important than that. So, um, yeah, I'm doing this about 10 years now, quite like daily, every day. I have a very good yoga studio right here, so I go every day. And um, it's interesting because I I do have the impression that I need much less practice, for example, because I'm so much aware of my my body and and the physical state, which actually, actually then helps on stage do it so there's an element yeah. of strengthening the core presumably from yeah. yoga so there's a physical there's a physical impact on the body yeah. in that it strengthens muscles yes uh, but also the practice of meditation yes but what, what impact is that having um, it does make it much easier to concentrate to relax but still stay extremely focused and I think that's just exactly what you need on stage right you need to be there um trust that everything will be fine and still be aware of, of the body I mean that's the first thing, thing that you that a, a musician might forget under stress or, or anxiety or whatever you forget the basics right and um, I think by now I, I do manage to just kind of quiet down and feel centered and uh, yeah what is the what is the pre-performance routine for you then yoga it's yoga before yeah, yeah, before yeah. a concert yeah right at least like half an hour, 40 minutes. Yeah, yeah. It quiets the heartbeat down, the breath. So then I can really go on stage and, and, and then enjoy what I'm actually doing there. Yeah. My assumption would be that I used to work as a stage manager, so this is another reason why I'm yeah. um, interested in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, my assumption would be that if you are getting yourself into that state before performance, yeah, yeah. then the last thing that you want is visits from people prior to performance yes I do I so now they're... officially want to say that as well <laughs> right, <laughs> I okay, don't okay. like managers <laughs> knocking on my door okay. to wish me good luck 10 minutes before yeah no, that would I seem... don't even talk anymore actually I really stop talking like I completely turn into myself in order to then later be able to really express what's there or the music I'm yeah. always quite intrigued about what happens at the end of a final rehearsal but between the end of a final rehearsal and concert mm. does that matter? so are you touching on that there that, that actually it's no more talking it's just me on my own I have my routine I'm going to perform and then we can crack open the bottle, bottle. yes you know, I mean that, that's very efficient if, if I do it like that but sometimes of course it's not possible and there are other things coming up and um, I think I'm, I'm quite a flexible person if it's different I can also accept it I can also go on stage being very sick and still play very can well. You? I think. Really? Yeah. There's something I can... God. There's a positive boost in me, I think, to just tell myself, I'll be fine, I'll do it, it's fine. 
<laughs> but so the, the, wow. Yeah, no, no, it's true. So yeah, yeah. I, but then I suppose there's a, there's an additional pressure, isn't there? It, because if you're the soloist on the day of the concert, you can't. I mean, I know some soloists do, uh, and I find that infuriating because yeah. you can't be that ill. You, you know, you really can't be that ill. Uh, but there must presumably be a certain amount of pressure yeah. that if you're ill on the day of performance, you you can't really phone in sick, can you? You've got to be there. Yeah, I'm not. I'm, I'm really not the kind of person to do it. I just kind of get myself through it. And again, yoga helps, right? To tell yourself, oh, it will be fine. <laughs> Even if I feel really sick, I won't show it. I mean, there's this there's this really interesting um, experiment. Like in yoga, they say, and, and there were some uh, there was some research about that. That if you force yourself to smile, even if you really don't feel like mm. it. You actually start to become happy because yes. you get endorphins. So I, I, I try to do that very much on stage. And it helps. One minute, one minute of smiling and everything's possible. That leads on to a, another interesting question. Well, certainly for me, which is uh, I know that when I sometimes stand up and run workshops or I, uh, I don't give speeches, obviously, but, but you know when I stand up in front of a group of people, um, I do as as just like any other human being, I do inevitably look on the faces of other people uh, and look for some kind of validation. You know, I may not be actively seeking their validation, but I'm certainly looking for some kind of recognition. Uh, I know how I am when I'm a member of the audience and how I must appear. What do you see of the audience, and is there anything that will put you off? Um. Well, as a clarinetist, I don't have any other choice than watching the audience, yeah. of course. It's not like a violinist can go up, yeah, and, you know, yeah. up in space and yeah. close their eyes, whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I, I do have this, this um, a kind of a special approach. I always tell myself to consciously watch people. Not like staring at no, one, no. one person in particular, but just in general... Um, to see everyone and to um, to acknowledge that they're there also maybe what kind of expressions they're showing but then again not to um, let myself be distracted that's that's the challenge that's yes and sometimes it's hard if you see some people maybe being tired or <laughs> I don't know looking at their phone oh yeah that's, that's kind of awful but um well, it's interesting. I, I, I actually try... I try not to try too hard. Because I did notice that whenever you're trying hard as a musician to make it work and do the right thing and make people happy, it, it's actually not really going to happen in that way because you, you put pressure on yourself. So, I don't know. I, I really put the music in the first place. I go on stage. I tell myself, okay, I'm well prepared. Oh, nice, an audience, hello. And I play, but I do it for the music and much less for the audience in a way. If they enjoy, if they, if they like it, if there's a lot of applause, I'm of course very happy. But I'm not going to make that influence um, you the level of performance, for example, because it can, it can really distract, of course. So you're serving the music, not the audience? Yes, definitely. And yeah, they are yeah. merely observing? Yeah. Wow. Uh, I have this idea that 
there would be a very awkward moment when you catch the eye of an audience member looking at you. Yeah. I mean, that's what I would fear. And then, you, and then the internal processing that's going on is, I can't look back there again because if I look back there again, they might they might look at me again <laughs> and then we laughing. end up <laughs> exactly, and then they reveal their <laughs> score and go, oh my god, what have you got there? Um, I, that that's that's my imagination speaking. Um, yeah. Because my memory of performing is is only that I felt this enormous pressure to get through the music. So I never re- <clears throat> the reason for asking all of these things is because I've never really experienced performance where you are so in contra- you know you're so on it with the music that actually you are enjoying the performance process. I've never had that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I'm asking you loads yeah. of questions. It's I never too okay. late. You think it's, it's never too no, late? No, it's never too late. I think it's just it's, it really needs kind of a a bit of practice and this just this click in your head to tell yourself like okay if somebody doesn't like it hmm, so what. That's important. Need... It's not that, that I wouldn't care yes. about that because, of course, reviews about albums, of course, I read them. I also read sometimes, you know, ones that have some, some, some critics in it. But um, it's, not really, it's not really the essence of why, you know, why a musician is doing what he or she is doing, I think. Uh, I didn't expect to ask you about reviews, and this is not necessarily your personal take on reviews but what as a as a musician what do you what do you need from a review what do you find useful in a review I find um, very precise information useful you know usually after two or three lines I can have a sense of hmm does this person really know what he's writing about or what she's writing about and um, if it's the case I keep reading if it's not I, I often stop reading yeah I, I really like it when it goes into the, in the to the musical aspects or, or the performance itself very often it goes in, in in a bit kind of backyard areas and and you yeah. like the backyard areas is that what you're saying no not really. no you don't because okay, it's right, not right. it doesn't really have anything to do with with the music itself or with the album yeah mm-hmm. so detail about the work yeah and knowledge of the work yes I love it when somebody can write wow I mean maybe not bar 21 but in this passage this and this was very beautiful or I or I didn't like this and that but so you but don't mind the negative stuff no so, I okay. don't oh no, no the, I don't. the reason I'm asking this is because certainly within the uh, the blogging world and the Twitter world mm-hmm. um, there is a almost there is often a sort of almost like a culture war type thing mm-hmm. going on about whether criticism is actually pushing people away or whether criticism still has a role uh, in terms of musical criticism whether it still has a key role and if it does have a key role what is it and what's what are the boundaries and what what are the processes and the etiquette Mm -hmm. and and I'm of the view that actually we're at a stage where um, we're a little bit frightened of detail we're a little bit frightened Mm -hmm. of going in deep into something because there is this assumption that that detail will alienate um, the passerby, and I and I always think that's a bit of a, I think it's a bit of a shame because I just think mm. details great. Well, and like you, you <laughs> think detail is great as well. Uh, but that's very useful. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> what are you most proud of on the album? Oh, that's a shitty question, oh. isn't it? It's really, yeah, because really I mean, awful because you like all of them, surely. <laughs> no, I really do. Um. 
Can I choose two? Okay. Sure. <laughs> yes. I like the Debussy Rhapsody most because this is really what I had in mind. Also in terms of, of the orchestral colors around it, I think it's, it's, it has become really good. And um, I was very surprised by the Vidor that the arrangement with the orchestra would work that well. Yes. And what do your what do your pupils make of this? My students. Mm. Um, Sorry, your students. My pupils, pupils make it sound um, You mean of the album? Yeah. What I think about it? I what have they said? I have should, they heard I it? should give them a copy. No, the year has. No, no, no. Of course they know. I think some of them um, downloaded the you know the, the tracks digitally, and um, I remember. No, no, I did. I did send some of them um, the tracks. I mean, they were not a hundred percent finished yet, but I did send it to some of them. The, I sent the Brahms to one pupil and um, the Vidor to another one and they were supposed to play those pieces to the piano in their final exam and it's true that all of a sudden one week later in the lesson it was like oh that's a different piece <laughs> I mean they did not imitate me of course but I, I guess that they felt inspired and um, yeah they love it so they can serve 12 students mm-hmm. yeah in Antwerp was there okay? Now I'm projecting myself onto you. I don't know you, but um, was there was there not a little bit of you that sort of thought, oh, what are they going to make of it? What happens if they What happens if they really think, oh, this is terrible? I mean, they're obviously not yeah. telling you that, but uh, is it, was there a bit of you that sort of went, um, you feel slightly uncomfortable by this? Not really. Oh my god! No, because <laughs> wow. No, no, be no, you. because the whole the whole atmosphere in the Enter Planet Plus is extremely kind I would say I mean I'm, I'm strict with them but for example making a mistake in a lesson or having an issue is actually interesting because then we can start to work on something so it's a bit the same for, for, for the album I mean I've, I've made it I'm very happy about it which doesn't happen very often because right, I am exactly. a perfectionist right. and um, I, I'm more like yeah but let, let's see what people think I'm very happy so I'm, I'm not going to you know, that's it. Yeah, I, I'm at pains to point I mean? out that I wasn't suggesting that you should feel nervous about passing it on to yeah, students. Yeah. Uh, I was just interested to, to know what the experience was. How is it that you're strict with your students? Um, if I was to be a student of yours. Well, I, I, I want them to work hard, but in a very intelligent way. I, I also uh, work with them on finding ways and methods how to practice, how to approach a piece. To not just do it and just play it and make mistakes all over again. To um, yeah, I, I, I want them to analyze themselves, get aware of things, listen very carefully. That's your strategy, yeah. though. Yeah. How is it that you're strict when implementing that strategy? Um, well, See, probably because I yell every four bars. But do you really? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> No, no, I she said, no, 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 throwing but, her head back. No, <laughs> but they would first like play a piece through, and then I would say, okay, let's start working. And then um, I, I don't really let go through many things. Like if there are little issues, we really work on them, but not in a, you know, I, I, I. But that's a difficult thing to do, surely, because actually, that that desire to focus in on the detail could potentially. I mean, the student leaves the lesson thinking, I didn't get anything right. <laughs> God, yeah, yeah. what's this going to be like? I mean, so how do you navigate that? Well, I, I just make make it very clear to them that there is time. And it's up to them 
to try their best um, uh, to actually you know perform in a certain way but that there's there's no there's no pressure like it's it's really I, I almost I'm happy whenever they make a mistake. I'm oh, thank you. For it. Oh, <laughs> right, that's yay. Right. Yeah, really. I still have like a you know, clarinetic <laughs> squeak sometimes, and there there there's teachers that would probably go insane when it happens in a lesson. But I'm I, I'm really completely the other way around because when I practice myself, I mean it's it's not going to help me at all. Whenever I mean you know if I have a negative approach, oh I didn't do it. Oh let's do it again. This doesn't this didn't work. So I, should, so, I, I always tell myself whatever I've done already is there I'm, ha- I'm happy about it and you know let's see what's still there to work on but I'm you know going in, in, into the negative way of that was wrong that was wrong this was wrong it's, it's not a great um, approach You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, a labour of love made by a man who, like many others, needs to eat. Please consider supporting the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast and helping me eat by signing up to exclusive access to content and extra bits and pieces via Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash thoroughly good to do just that. Thank you very much.